you. So we're going to be continuing our covenant series today, and we're going to be talking about the Bible. Because last week we talked about our statement of faith and, and, and why we have one. You know, we didn't go through it in detail. But one of the things that we talked about at the end of that was we have this commitment to biblical truth. And uh, it, it's important for us to, to, to understand and, and codify, I think, what is our relationship with the Bible, okay? Because whether we like it or not, we are Bible people. And also, whether we like it or not, for those of us who live in the Western world, the Bible has been the most influential book on our culture and history for the last 2,000 years, for better or for worse, okay? And there are times when it has been for worse. And so how do we treat this book? Because we all know, and, and, and I know most of you, but we all know and have experienced ways that we can get this wrong, Right? There's many, many wrong ways to treat the Bible, and, and, and sometimes we can get so dismayed about treating the Bible incorrectly that, that we just want to refrain from the conversation altogether and shrink back, and we're just going to give the Bible some exalted status where, where, where we never discuss how we use it, or it just, it just occupies a place at the back of the service on the stage, and then that's as far as it goes, and we don't want to do that. We want to actually examine this book, and what is it, and what do we believe it is, and how do we wrestle with it well, and how do we treat it? So the basic question that we're going to be answering today, hopefully, is what is the Bible? Now again, I want to caution you, uh, and, and I'm saying this out loud to caution myself, because uh, this sermon could go from anywhere from 15 minutes to eight and a half hours. And uh, so I'm going to try and keep it closer to 15 minutes. So again, if I stop abruptly, uh, please uh, forgive me. That's just the way it's going to have to work. But what we say in our covenant as an answer to the question, what is the Bible, is this. We say we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, fully inspired in the original manuscripts, written by humans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that it has supreme authority in all manners of faith and, uh, faith and conduct, okay? So, this is non-biblical, okay? This is a statement that the elders have come up with together. We wrote this. So, this is not Bible. This is not, you know, so if you have problems and beef with this, this is okay, okay? So, this is our addition. But we are, and we are making leaps of faith about what we believe about the Bible and how it works. And what we're saying here is we're saying at least three things, okay? And I, and I'm, I kind of want to separate these out uh, just for the, for the ease of our conversation about them. We're saying that the Bi we believe that the Bible is the Word of God fully inspired in the original manuscripts. That's the first thing we're saying. Second thing we're saying, we're saying that it is written by humans under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing, that it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. So these are the three things that we're saying. And, uh, and so the first thing that we're saying about inspiration, we get that from here in 2 Timothy uh, 3, 14 to 16, where Paul is, is writing to Timothy. He's a young pastor. He's, he's dealing with a congregation that's probably in, in a city that's probably a little bit beyond him. And, and in, to encourage him, Paul writes this to Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you have become convinced of, because, because you know from those uh, from whom you learned it, and now from infancy you have made known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed 
and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is what we mean when we say inspired, that all Scripture is God-breathed, that God infused people with his words and that they wrote what God intended. Now, this is different than saying God dictated, right? We don't believe that. There are other religious traditions that believe that God dictated his word. Uh, Islam believes that God dictated uh, the instruction to Muhammad. Mormons believe that, that uh, so, so that's God dictated. Mormons believe that the, the Book of Mormon was written on gold plates and already written on gold plates and then given to Joseph Smith. We don't believe that. We believe that God worked through people breathing into them his words and through them uh, through them and their uh, and, and their engagement with God out comes this word that he that is fully what God intended it to be okay so this is where it comes from now we are making some leaps of faith in this when we say that we believe that the Bible is the word of God Um and one of the first leaps of faith that we're making is that, is that this Bible is composed of 66 books, for lack of a better term. So this is, this is a collection in a library. And what we're believing, what we're making a leap of faith is that God not only inspired the authors to write each one of these individual 66 books, but we're also making the leap of faith that God inspired the people who selected these 66 books to be a part of the library that we consider the Bible, okay? Now, there's a history behind that. Pretty much the, the Hebrew Bible Old Testament was pretty much agreed upon by everyone uh, prior to the time of Jesus. Um, there's some disputed, uh, some disputed books in, in terms of what we would call the Apocrypha, okay? So those are, uh, so basically this is, this is uh, if you want, the, if, the best basic level hermeneutics lesson that you can get uh, would be to watch uh, Buck Denver's What's in the Bible, which all of our children have done. It's a children's thing. It's a little bit hard to get past the children's songs because they're really annoying, but it's also the best 100-level hermeneutics class you're ever going to get. Like, I wish they kind of made an adult's version that's less annoying. But, um, but, but basically, the Old, Testament, uh, the Old Testament, as we understand it, uh, it, 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 was translated into Jesus' time in a, in a collection of books called the Septuagint. Septuagint were 70 scholars who gathered in Alexander, Egypt, and, is, and translated the, the Hebrew and Aramaic books of the Bible into Greek. Now, there are manuscripts for what we consider the Apocrypha that are part of the Septuagint. Those are the Wisdom of uh, Solomon, First and Second Maccabees, uh, those, those books in the middle. We have Greek manuscripts for those. We don't have Hebrew manuscripts for those. So that's why they weren't included in our Old Testament in the same way. So... Um, so that's where we get to that. Then we get to the New Testament, which really didn't become codified into the 27 books of the New Testament until roughly 325 around the Council of Nicaea. But there were, at the time, pretty much universal agreement on what books ought to be, ought to be included. So, um, whoops, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Ah, here we are. Sorry. 
So there, uh, there were disputed books in the New Testament, uh, and the disputed books were, and I'm just going to give you a list so you can, just for your own interest and fun, uh, were the Epistle of James, the Epistle of Jude, Second Peter, Second and Third John, the Book of Revelation, the Gospel of Hebrews, Epistle to the Hebrews, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Acts of Paul, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Epistle of Barnabas, and the Didache. So in all, so those were all of the ones that were arguable about which was going to get included and not included. And if, if you'll notice, like if we had have excluded all of them, the, the New Testament would actually be much smaller than it is, right? And the basic reasons why most books didn't, that weren't included, that the, why why one book was included and another book was. The last book of, of the New Testament as we currently have it instructed, uh, constructed was uh, the Revelation of John. And that was written roughly in 90 AD. Okay? And that seems to be the cutoff line for what all of the manuscripts that got in, all of the ones that were excluded, like the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, other books like that, they were excluded because the earliest manuscripts that we have from those don't appear until 150 AD. Now, that's a huge difference in terms of history because Jesus' life and, and times were roughly around 33 AD, right? So if you're so so somebody a book that appears in 90 AD, which is 60 years difference, and a book that appears in 150 AD, which is much greater, that's a massive difference in terms of history, okay? So if the Shepherd of Hermas was written roughly to 150 to 170 years after the time of Jesus. That is the same as me writing a book today about the Franco-Prussian War that happened in 1868, right? So the Franco-Prussian War happened in 1868. And if I wrote a book about that, whose word are you going to believe or include in the manuscripts of things about the Franco-Prussian War? Are you going to include my book written here in 2017, or are you going to include Otto, uh, Otto von Bismarck's book from 1868, who actually existed and lived during the time, Right? That is the, the basic definition of what got in and what did not get in. Shepherd of Hermas, you're out. You, we have no manuscripts prior to, uh, prior, to, uh, prior to 150. The Dake, you're out. We have no real early manuscripts of that. You know, Second John, you're in. You're from about 80 AD. So that tends to be the, the dividing line. So that's the, those are the, so, uh, okay. So. So we fully believe that the Bible is the word of God fully inspired in the original manuscripts. Now we make this thing about the original manuscripts because all of us are dealing, when we deal with the Bible, with translations, okay? Every single one of us. This is my, this Bible that I read from is, uh, that I read from when I'm up here is a New International Version, most recent New International Version, which is like 2013. When I put these up here, I get them from the New International uh, version UK edition, which means that the, the words are spelled properly, um, and color has a U, and organization has a Z, and it is a Z, um, but yeah, but that's the, that's the one I use. Now, I don't always and only use those. I use, uh, in English, I, when, I'm, when I'm looking something up, I'll, I'll often use the, the NASB, or New American Standard trans Bible, because that is the most literal. Their job when they were trying to translate that was have the most literal translation of each individual word. As such, it's really choppy and hard to read, right? But that's what it was trying to do. The NIV is trying to translate into the common vernacular, right? So it, they're, they're making translations decisions. Now, we 
How, so, so one of the things that people will sometimes use to, to dis, dispute the, 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 the veracity of the Bible is to say that, like, yes, the bio, there, are, there are literally hundreds and thousands of manuscripts of every book of the Bible found all over the ancient world. Um, so we have more manuscripts of the Bible than we have any other book in human history. Um, but there are differences between some of those manuscripts. So we have to wrestle with this. And so we have to make decisions about what manuscripts that we think are, are the best. Uh, my favorite uh, and, and kind of funniest example is that um, uh, this will be so, something that you guys know. What is the number of the beast? 666, right. right? And that is from a verse in Revelation, right? That's awesome. So the number of the beast, you will know that a beast, it has a number and, it, and its name, and it's 666. So... Except that there are a lot of manuscripts from the era that are found that people are still arguing about that say that the number of the beast is, yep, or 667, equally, equally great number. So one, maybe let's not get so wrapped up in the number of the beast, but two, these are conversations that we can have, right? The, the, there are alternate manuscripts that have slightly differing word variations. Um, so one of the most famous stories uh, of the Bible that is an example of this is from John chapter 8. Does everybody know the story of the woman found in adultery? I believe that's John chapter 8. Yes, John chapter 8. So John, cha uh, so jo uh, John chapter 7, verse 53, uh, and down to 8, verses 11. Does anybody have any markings in their Bible around that story, right? That's because the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this, okay? So, there are, so everybody's making a decision about does this belong in the Bible. Now, what's interesting is, is how some people choose to use this. Some people choose to ignore it. I'm really fascinated by, uh, there's a, and I've read his stuff before, but but John Piper is about as literalist as you get in terms of uh, in terms of, of Bible stuff, and he's really on the conservative side. And I respect him for that. I disagree with him a lot of the time. Super conservative, though. And he has a sermon where he does not believe, and he's admitted that he doesn't believe that John uh, that this story from the first of John actually happened. He doesn't believe that this was real because it wasn't included in the original manuscripts, but he does believe that it, was still, that it still teaches us good things and true things about who Jesus is, which I'm like, sorry, just if you know John Piper, that's shocking and weird. But, um, but it's a fascinating thing. This is how we approach it. So we do have differing manuscripts. My, uh, so, 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 the, so at some point, we have chosen to make the leap of faith, and we are choosing to make the leap of faith that this Bible that we have and is shared around the world is the Word of God. We're just making a decision on that. And that doesn't mean that we're not aware that there are discussions about which book ought to be in and which book ought to be out, or that we're not aware that there's differing, differing textual criticisms about different manuscripts. We're aware of that. But we're making a leap of faith, and we're making a leap of faith that God is leading us, that this Bible that most of us have been using throughout human history is the word of God. We're just going to make that jump, okay? And we're not going to be afraid or ashamed of the fact that there are differing manuscripts out there and, there is, and, that, and that this is a partnership between God and humans because this is the second part. 
We believe that the Bible is fully the word of God, fully inspired in the original manuscripts, but that it's written by humans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we're making a leap of faith and, 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 and an assumption about, uh, uh, about truth that is essentially illogical in this. As Christians, we believe in, or in, our, in our covenant, we believe in something that is inherently illogical, that Jesus is both fully God and fully human, okay? And we, the, no matter how we try and twist that into human logic, it doesn't work. We have to accept that that is a paradox, that somehow Jesus is fully God and fully human. And, and, our, and that has really been a point of heresy throughout Christian history. Is like people have tried to make Jesus less God or less human. And what we've agreed on as, or, as Orthodox people uh, in following Jesus is that no, somehow in ways that are greater than our logic, this makes sense. We also believe the same truth about this book. That this book is fully inspired by God and fully written by humans. And because it's fully inspired by God, it's fully true. But because it's fully written by humans, it's written into a specific time, into a specific culture, into a specific scenario, coming from people with a specific set of circumstances. And acknowledging that does not diminish the godliness of this book. But it helps us to be aware of what it is, that this is a partnership, that God has instituted, that he's initiated this with human authors, but that, but that human culture and bias comes out in this as well. And that's why we wrestle with it in the way that we do. This is a mystery that through hundreds and thousands of manuscripts over thousands of years and through multiple translations around the world, that, that somehow we believe that, that this book as published and constituted, matters for us. And that this is what God would have us to believe. Because in all honesty, when we talk about textual criticism, does it make that big a difference if the number of the beast is 666 or 667? Not really, if you look at it in context. It really doesn't. I know my... I will never not laugh at people using uh, the number 667 and talking about the neighbor of the beast. Um, that will never stop being funny to me, but so. So then, then we say this part, that the Bible has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct, and this is, and this is how uh, I want us to get at that. We start to talk about authority. Every church or every group of human beings that agrees to, to live together has to have some agreement on what authority looks like. Okay, in a democracy, in a democratic society, we believe that, that one person, one vote, whoever we constitute people to be at that time, whoever gets to vote, but that somehow the plurality of us make the decision. Now, in churches, there's always just been this kind of three-legged stool of authority, that, that somehow these three things work together to find authority, human reason, church tradition, and the Bible. Now, different branches of the Christian tradition will place different emphasis on different uh, legs of this stool. If we were to look at the Roman Catholic tradition, and I'm not in any way criticizing the Roman Catholic tradition, I want to be very careful about that. It's been too much of a history of uh, anti-Catholic sentiment amongst evangelicals. But the Roman Catholic Church would put a major emphasis on this church tradition part. That would be the biggest portion of their leg uh, of the leg of their stool and authority would deride in that and that's why you can get papal bulls where where the the pope said it therefore it becomes true for all christians throughout all of history right that's where the ch the church tradition comes in 
Can we go back one? Okay. Um, so the, the, then for most evangelicals, you know, we would believe that the Bible is the biggest stool, and, and, uh, and then for others, it's human reason, and, and the more liberal end of things would push it way over to the side of human reason, that, that human reason and, uh, and the most extreme example of this would be the Unitarians who, who really place human reason as the primary source of authority and really disregard the Christian tradition in the Bible because they've been fallible in their minds in the past. So what we are trying to do is this, is that we want to have the Bible be the biggest leg of our stool. Okay, that, that, that when we make decisions, correctly or incorrectly, when we have discussions and arguments about who we are and what we're going to do, that, that the biggest leg of our authority is not going to come from me because I have a position, or it's not going to come from, from all of us, but, but we're going to deal with this Bible thing. Now, that's going to be the biggest part of our of our stool. Now, I want to be careful with this because there are some of my colleagues and other evangelical pastors who would say that the Bible should be the only leg, right? And lots of people in our tradition, what I grew up with, is that, said that the Bible should be the only leg of the stool, that there is no room for human reason nor church tradition. However, we need to be honest about this. It's that no one reads the Bible without using human reason. Like when we read the Bible, we engage with it using our minds. And whether we like it or not, we're interpreting the Bible from our own specific culture, from our own specific place, from our own specific uh, view and lens, right? So we're going to use human reason. And we're also going to use church tradition as a tool to try and get us closer to what God, what God has called us to. When, I, when we examine an issue in the Bible... It's very important and valuable for us to go back and say, like, what have Christians thought about this in the past? We're not going to ignore that, where it's going to be a smaller leg of the tradition, but it's going to be something that we look at. So this is what we're trying to get to, that the Bible becomes the main point of uh, the, the, the biggest leg of our stool. And if we're disagreeing with, we, with each other, then our disagreements are going to come down to what are our disagreements in the text, okay? So... Take, take, uh, this, take a, what, a controversial issue in our church today, not our church, but in the bigger church. Should women be elders, right? And now our church has made that decision. We believe that women should be elders, and we do that from a biblically-based perspective in that I look at the Old Testament and see that Deborah was one of the judges uh, of Israel. I see that Jael had a, had a primary place in the, in the Old Testament. I see that Junia is listed amongst the, the apostles at the end of uh, the book of Romans. I see that, um, that the, the, when Paul formed a church that they met at Lydia's house, the fact that they were at Lydia's house indicates that Lydia was the overseer for the church. Um, the, that when, uh, when they're talking about Achilla and, uh, Priscilla and Achilla, Priscilla's name always comes first, indicating that she had some sort of primary role. So we've made decisions about that based on the Bible. Now, I have brothers and sisters who I care about and believe, uh, love Jesus, who have said, yes, that is evidence, but we see 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man, and therefore we believe that women ought not to be elders. Now, I believe that 
those people are brothers and sisters. And we, we might disagree about church government to the point where it's just like, okay, well, we can't really be on the same page about whether or not we're going to be in the same congregation. They are not evil, right? They are not even incorrect. They're, they're not mistreating the text, right? They're, they're brothers and sisters who have come to an alternate conclusion based on the text. So, but my question for them when I ask them about it is like, okay, show your work. How did you get there? And if they got there through the text, then that's okay. And I would appreciate it if they would give me the same grace as well to assume that when we have women elders, we're not just crumpling First Timothy 2 up into a ball and throwing it away because we don't like it, but rather we're saying like this is in balance with all of these other things and we see that this is an important part of the text as well. So that's how we come to our conclusions. And I think that if we're going to have the Bible as the biggest leg of our stool, we have to be sophisticated and mature enough to understand that two Bible-believing followers of Jesus who love and, and appreciate the work of God in their lives can be faithful to the text and come to two different conclusions, okay? That is the room that we're going to make for our brothers and sisters. So we're going to make we're, 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 so I want us to be really clear about that, that while we believe that the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice, we recognize that the Bible has to be wrestled with, that the Bible has to be worked through, that the Bible is a tool that points us in a direction in all matters of faith and conduct. So what do we do with this? Because the next thing that our covenant is going to say, and both the commitments of the church and the commitments of the covenanters start with our relationship to the Bible, where when we covenant with the church, we say, I covenant to immerse myself in God's word and to allow, its, allow it to permeate all aspects of my life with its truth. So our expectation as people who covenant with the church is that, is that we're going to dig into this. We're going to wrestle with it. We're going to read it. We're going we're gonna to fight it, we're, we're gonna, and we're, there's going to be times when we disagree with it. There's going to be times when it's like, I don't, you know, it's okay to, to read the Bible and be like, there's a lot of people being smited in the Old Testament. Like, what's going on there? It's okay to wrestle with that. But we're going to engage it and take it seriously, okay? We're going to dig in and immerse, it, immerse ourselves in God's Word and allow it to affect all, all of our life with its truth. It's interesting, when you read Psalm 119, which is... I would, I would if, if I can give you homework this week, your homework is going to be to read Psalm 119. Um, if I was going to give you co- homework for a year, it would be memorize Psalm 119, but, but I haven't done that yet either. So, but when you read it, it's, it's this huge, long poem about the psalmist's relationship with the Word of God. And it's interesting because as he's talking about his relationship with the Word of God, he's finding comfort and peace in it. He's finding wisdom in guiding it. He has love and longing for it. This Word gives him confidence and assurance. And we believe that this Word, this Bible, this book of God that we spend time talking about in Bible studies and in sermons and in all these things and sing about in our songs, that, all, that the, these are, this is a tool that is used by God to bring us all of these things. And that is why when the church commits to us, the church is saying, we're going to study the scriptures as well, that we're going to follow the spirit to lead and administer and steward in a way that is, in a manner that is godly and God-honoring. So when we have a beef with each other, when we have a disagreement, this is going to be as much of a rule book as we can get it, as we can get it to be. We're going to dig into this together. 
We're going to say, like, how does this work? And we're going to hold each other accountable. And this is going to be the playground and the tool that we use to get closer to the truth. And I want to be really clear as I say this, and and this is so fundamental to our relationship with the Bible, because this is one of the ways that we can get it twisted. This is a tool. This is a God-made tool. This is a beautiful tool, and this is a tool that I love, but it is a tool to point us toward God. It is not God himself. So if this is pointing me towards God, and if my immersing myself in this is bringing me to, to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, if it is doing that, then I should delight in the tool, but delight more in who the tool is pointing me toward. Do not confuse the tool that God made with God himself, okay? And I don't in any way say that to d- disrespect the Bible, but you disrespect the tool maker if you believe that the tool is God himself, right? And I'm not willing to allow this to become an idol. Or, and I'm not willing to allow my interpretation of it to become an idol, okay? And I th- because this is a tool, because this is useful for training and sharpening and rebuking and training in righteousness... It's fair for us, to, for, the, for us to expect that this book is going to do the things that God expected us to do. That, that immersing ourselves in this is going to cause us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I also think it's fair, and this is fair not just for, for in our church, but when we see other people claim to be Christians or try and use the Bible in a different way in a public manner, that if this book is not causing them to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, if this tool is not causing them to love their neighbors as themselves, it's fair for us to say you're using it wrong. So there are times when those who are famous Christians come out and say things on news reports and, 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 and use this book in a way that diminishes human beings, use this book in a way that justifies the actions of some people and disregards the actions of other people, that I'm saying, you're using this wrong. And what frustrates me as a teacher of this book is that there are millions of people And I know hundreds of people who disregard this book as a tool to get to know God because so many people use the tool badly. Okay, And I get frustrated with that. And that's why we need to make sure that our relationship with this is proper and right. That this is a tool that points us towards God. It is not God himself. So this is the challenge for us. That will we immerse ourselves in God's word and allow it to permeate all aspects of my life with its truth? And the reason why that's a challenge is because that requires us to immerse ourselves in God's word. Not books about God's word, right? Not inspirational memes about God's word, which take it out of context. Not, Not movies about God's word, or popular culture about God's word, although those things can all, all be good, but to, per, you, but to jump into God's word. This is an amazing privilege that we have and that we can read 
more than any other group of people ever in human history anywhere on the planet. And as such, this is a huge responsibility that's been given to us that we ought not to take for granted. We want to immerse ourselves in God's word and allow it to permeate all aspects of our lives with its truth. The biggest issue that I have with lots of people, especially those who claim to speak for the Bible in more public manners, is that they've allowed the Bible to, to permeate part of their life with its truth. So they've got, so they said, okay, well, the Bible gets to, it gets to permeate my Sunday morning. So it tells me what to do on Sunday mornings. And Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. So I gather. There, that, that's Sunday morning, blocked off, the bio, the, that God has, has permeated that portion of my life with its truth. And, and it's permeated my family life with, in, with its truth that I believe marriage is for one man and one woman. And, uh, and uh, I believe that through, from, uh, from a couple of passages in 1 Corinthians. And, and, you know, and, and I have a ton of respect for that as a view. You know? but, uh, and, and it's allowed to, to permeate there. But it's not allowed to permeate my, my economics or my bank account because my money is mine, right, and I've worked for it, and I'm not going to allow God's truth to permeate and tell me that, like, oh, wait a minute, all of these are a gift that belong to God, and that, and that maybe I ought to be using this to, to, to care for other people in as, much as, in as much as I should be using this to care for myself. Maybe there's more than just hoarding and storing things up. So, or, or I, I'm going to allow it to permeate this, you know, so I'm, but, so I'm not going to allow it to permeate my economics. I'm not going to allow it to permeate my off time, my entertainment, all of those other things. That the, I'm going to allow the Bible to permeate part of my life, but not the whole thing. And that's a major danger that all of us are, are susceptible to. We need to allow it to permeate all aspects of our life with its truth from the way that we think about our bodies, to the way that we think about our economics, to the way that we think about the way that we treat other people, to the way that we think about our politics. Now there's lots of room for us to come to entirely different conclusions on that, but are we wrestling with the text? And I think that that's the most fascinating thing that, that I see as, as that we've gotten wrong in evangelical subculture. Because evangelical subculture, a lot of people have, there's two things that I think have been most damaging about our relationship with the Bible. One is uh, the idea of the Bible being a manual for living. If you approach this as a manual for living, you will be incredibly disappointed. Why? How do manuals work? Well, you don't read them. Lots of people don't read them. But manuals work by saying, here is all the tools, and this is how you put them together, right? Put, uh, uh, put piece A into slot B, connecting them with screw X, right? And you're like, okay, the Bible is a manual for living. And then you open it up, and it's like, well, one time a guy was walking all around, all down the road, and, and he saw a prostitute. And, uh, and he, 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 he slept with her. And, and then she tricked him. Into giving her his, uh, into giving her a goat and uh, and his uh, and his uh, and his staff, and then later uh, she embarrassed him and made him feel bad, and he was invited into her house. And then she's in the genealogy of Jesus, not as much of a manual, right? But that, that's the way that the Bible works. Is it's this collection of stories that immerse ourselves in it. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, they talk about dancing with the Torah. And even today, if you go to, and I've seen images of, of, of Hebrew and, and Jewish services where, where they will literally dance with the Torah. 
because they love it so much. And this is the relationship that we're called to have with this. It's a, it's a dance as God works within us and allows us to work with, it, with him. And the other thing, and, and as we're called to dance with this, the other really damaging thing that people have said, I think, is that God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Now, that's true, sort of. Because did God actually say it? And did God say it in that way? And did God say it in that way that applies to this specific situation? Because what that does is it eliminates all of the wrestling. It eliminates all of the dancing. It eliminates all of the engagement. It eliminates all of the permeating that needs to happen in order for the Bible to make a difference in our lives. Because it's so easy to say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, and that diminishes your relationship with the text. And that diminishes your relationship with what God is, with God speaking to you. So if, if you just live in that place where it's like you have just the most basic cursory relationship with the Bible, how can you actually get to know God and how he's working as well, right? So we all do this, and I hope that you... And the other thing is, uh, and, and I wasn't going to say this, but, cause it's, but, I, but I do just want to close on this idea because I'm, I'm a little bit worried, especially for you folks online. You need to engage in the Bible on your own. You need to engage with the Bible on your own. If all of your Bible engagement is filtered through me, you're in trouble. Okay? Not because I'm stupid or not because I'm trying to mislead you or not because, but you are getting the Bible filtered through me. And I'm doing a, a pretty good job of it and I'm trying my best, but you need to not only trust me. The Holy Spirit is using the Bible to speak to you. That's why in Acts chapter 17, the, uh, sorry, yeah, in Acts chapter 17, the Bereans were called of more noble character. Because as Paul taught them, they did not just accept what Paul said at face value, but they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And we need to do that together. Don't just take my word for it. Go dig in the Bible yourself. That's what you've been called to do. And there is no mediator between you and Jesus. There is, like, that is not my job. My job is to lead us in a direction, but you need to, to, to reach into the Bible yourself and get from it because I'm just not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not God enough to, to give you everything that the Bible would have for you. And I know that, that all of you are nodding and like, yes, of course, this is, this is perfectly true and, 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 and I get it, but we still have to read it. Don't just nod, because I'm just as bad. Don't just nod and be like, right, I know that, I know that, I know that. Go and actually do something with it. Because this is what we've been called to do. And this is what we're going to be agreeing to. And if we're going to be agreeing to it, then we ought to actually do it. And the reason why we're asking people to actually do it is because we believe that this is going to be the best thing that happens for us and our church and for the world around us as well. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. And we do ask that you allow it to permeate all of our lives with its truth. There are times when we don't want to do that. There are times when we don't want to have our lives affected by your truth. But we ask that, that you would give us the courage to do that, knowing that it is what is best for us, that it is what is best for the world around us, and it, it, it is what is going to cause us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love 
our neighbors as ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. So we believe that the Bible is a tool to show us who God is, but the other, one of the other tools that God has given us is his table. And we believe that this table is a symbol of what he's doing, and when we come to this table, we recognize that this is just a simple table made of wood, that this is Welch's grape juice and wafers. We recognize that, and this is the reality of it. These are the, but at the same time, when we come here, we are acknowledging that this is a tool that the Holy Spirit is using us to infuse us with the grace and the love and the peace that comes from Jesus. And one of the things we believe is that this is a symbolic table, but that symbols matter, and that symbols are tools to show us who God is and how he is working in our lives. So as we come to this table, we are coming to Jesus broken for us. As we come to this table, we are coming to Jesus with his blood shed for us. We are coming to this table seeking the reconciliation that is available in Jesus. So let's pray and allow this tool to do the work that it was intended to do. We ask that the Holy Spirit open up our minds and our hearts to his work in and among us, that we would be changed and, and remember properly his death until he comes again. We'll take a minute in silence.